Hey, I'm Bradford Young, and you're listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ben. Hey, Ilya. How the hell are you doing? Doing pretty good. I just turned on my radio voice. Just totally turned on my radio voice just right there. Ah, hey, it's radio time here in Los Angeles <laughs> while the curfew's in effect. Yeah, so uh, for <laughs> listeners, we've been sheltering in place from COVID-19 for some time now. And uh, as we record this, there have been, uh, you know, riots across the country and uh, the city of L.A. has imposed a curfew that today began at 6 p.m. and lasts until 5 a.m. tomorrow. So, yeah, it's, yeah. it's kind of a crazy time. It is definitely, definitely a crazy time. Uh, this will give our dear listeners, though, an opportunity to catch up on their uh, streaming services. They'll be able to watch some <laughs> stuff because uh, going outside right now, especially in the evening, would be bad if, if you're in L.A. Or, and so, if you're in uh, many other major cities. And th- that is a brilliant segue, Ilya, to our close focus segment today, which is about a new streaming service that just hit the world. Just that. That's right. You know, one of the big players in streaming services just doubled down, and that is uh, HBO with the launch of HBO Max. Now the most expensive streaming service, but it has a tremendous catalog, including like all the Harry Potters. It basically has, it's the Warner Brothers library. It's the Warner Brothers library, and that is an extensive library. I need to find out if, if my movie Alien Raiders, which is a Warner Brothers title, is in there. If you want, when we're when we're done recording this, I, I will check Ooh. for you. I want to find out if Alien Raiders is on HBO Max because I'm going to tell everybody that it is. I mean, currently it is streaming on Vudu, but I would it would be awesome and wonderful if you could stream it on HBO Max. Yeah, HBO Max joins Disney Plus, Apple Plus, obviously Netflix, Amazon Prime as sort of like the uh, the, the Hulu. front runners. Yeah. yeah. And oh yeah, obviously Hulu, and then even things like CBS All Access, which That's is right. the Viacom. Yeah, not a library. bad service, actually. I, I, I got it for Twilight Zone and then let it go. And then I got it again for Picard and I still have it. I have a friend who said, oh, you want to watch the series here? Have my password. <laughs> I'm not using it. You can use it. So uh, uh, I became one of those people for CBS. Oh, and you're admitting it here. I'm um, admitting it right here. Someone let me use their password to see if I liked it. CBS, yeah, it was... I'll, I'll give you Ilya's address and That's you can right. send the movie cops to his house. You know, it seems like Netflix was encouraging that for a while. They seem to encourage like sharing of passwords, but uh, but I, I don't know. I don't know how, how it works exactly. Anyway, we have kind of a ridiculous number of, of services now. And I kind of wonder still, uh, when is someone going to come along and just bundle all these under one price so that it's not you're not billing out to like 50 different places for all of the stuff you watch you know because if because also nbc about to launch the peacock which is going to be the nbc streaming service just like cbs all access or i'm sure it'll be very very different and unique i don't mean to insult anyone who's working on the peacock but it, it's it's nbc's version of that idea how long before abc has that or is that just disney plus how are all these things going to integrate or is every studio going to do that is universal and paramount and you know on and on lionsgate is everyone going to have their own streaming service 
That's right. And what sort of metrics is everyone going to agree on for amount of views? Or will that all be private? Who knows? What will Nielsen do in an environment where everything is a streaming over the top and that data is no longer public information? Well, actually, I th- what I think about the Nielsen thing is they can still do kind of the Nielsen rating books the way that they did it in olden times. The problem is that like Netflix knows to the second and to the year, the demographics of everyone watching whatever they're watching and how long they're watching it for and what they're watching. Like they have outrageous analytics that they do not release, you know, which is something that like the regular TV networks never would have had basically up until now. If you were watching television, even cable television, they're not going to have the exact data that all of these services are going to clearly be able to collect with no problem. But Nielsen would sort of be guessing at the data that already existed because it's in the interest of these services to not share that data. Why is it not in their interest to, to share it? I think to a degree, if you're uh, like, let's say you're Netflix and you're working with David Fincher on Mindhunter, if the show is doing outrageously well, David Fincher could come in and say, double my money. If the show is barely hanging on but a thread, but you go ahead and green light it anyway, David Fincher is not in that powerful of a position. If he came in and said that, you'd be like, ah, never mind, let's cancel it. But this way, David Fincher can't know anything about how well his show is doing, so he can't go in and demand anything. He basically can just negotiate with them kind of blindly because they don't share. I, I've known people who worked on shows that were made for, uh, for Netflix. They don't share that data with the executive producers of those shows. You know, it's interesting because there are some third parties out there who have figured out ways to essentially find what everyone is streaming. Uh, I'm thinking most specifically of Vizio. Vizio, the uh, smart TV panel manufacturer, most Mm. famous for selling their TVs at extremely low prices, like through big box stores like Costco and that sort of thing. Uh, Vizio lost a lawsuit last year and they, they settled it for, I think, $17 million and have actually been now participating and starting to write some of the laws which go into it. But but Vizio, without disclosing it to any of the customers who bought their TV set, was taking a screenshot every second. And when you connected your computer to the internet, it sent that screenshot back to Vizio headquarters where they identified exactly what you were watching. And this included not stuff that was coming through your streaming service, but any device that you hooked up to it, like a DVD player or your home movies. Really? They were taking a screenshot of every single thing and sending it back. Oh yeah, you can Google this. This is a, uh, this is a well-known That's, lawsuit. Uh, potentially yeah. extremely embarrassing. Incredibly. And, you know, there are actually laws in place that prevent disclosure of your video store (laughs) rental history to the public. And that actually was used to help prosecute this case against uh, Vizio. So that's good because okay. I'd be embarrassed if everyone knew how many times I had rented uh, Captain. Uh, what What is it? Uh, uh, oh, I ruined my joke. Never mind. Screw it. <laughs> well, uh, I, I will always remember going to Vidiots in Santa Monica. And I had a friend who worked behind the counter who did not was not aware of this law and sometimes would reveal to me the celebrity who had rented the, the VHS tape before I was renting it or the DVD. Oh, and, really? Uh, I, I will refrain from saying who it was right now. But it's like you I, could still smell the Costner <laughs> on your copy of Turner and Who. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do remember renting Wild Things. Do you remember Wild Things? It oh, was of that. course, yeah. Yeah, so I rented Wild Things and John the, McNaughton. And the uh and my friend behind the counter goes, "Oh, okay. So uh so and so just returned this. Enjoy." <laughs> I was like, "Oh, okay." So he revealed to me who had had it just before before I'd 
it's not God, really it's not. Uh, that damning of information unless that person was Pat Robertson because uh, it was kind of a mainstream hit movie. Okay, it was Michael McKeon. It was Michael McKeon had rented it right before. Really? Me. See, yes. <laughs> See, that's cool. See, I thought that was pretty cool too. I was like, oh, Michael McKeon. I have no idea if he liked it. I have no idea if he even watched it, but supposedly it was his account. He might have rented, rented it just because he wanted something in the background on a party. Who the hell knows? <laughs> Uh, yeah. So it had, it had the uh, woman from party of five, Nev Campbell. Campbell. That's right. Yeah. Nev Campbell. So, okay. And All right. So, so Ben, uh, we have an incredible show today though. We should probably immediately get to that. So well, uh, we should, I, we should get to it and we should also tell everybody that this interview went on longer than a lot of other interviews. And we loved doing this interview. It was with, uh, Bradford Young, who is an amazing cinematographer, maybe to our listeners would be best known as the cinematographer on uh, Selma and uh, Arrival and the uh, Netflix series uh, When They See Us. And uh, before we even get into it, we always talk about how we talk art, craft and philosophy with our guests. That's that's our goal. We don't usually get into too much tech. And I feel like with Bradford, we talked more philosophy than we've ever talked with anybody, and it went really deep. And I could listen to this guy talk for nonstop for the next five weeks. He, uh, he was fascinating. Uh, agreed. And that's a really, really great conversation. In fact, I, I mean, this has got to be up there for one of the best ones we've ever done. I mean, it's, uh, it's so good uh, and so long and so deep. We're splitting it into two parts. And, uh, you know, this is part one. And by the way, we just kind of want to say to our listeners as well, we were planning on releasing this episode this week. We didn't change the order we were releasing it in just because of what's going on in the world. But it's kind of a weird coincidence uh, th- there are no silver linings to all the crazy garbage that's going on in the world, in my opinion. But it's a, a very positive coincidence, I think, to listen to somebody like Bradford, who I think in a time like this actually gives me a little bit of hope for <laughs> um why we do what we do in in ways that I don't think about as often as I should. So uh, I'm I'm not going to pontificate about this any further, but let's go ahead and get to the interview with Bradford Young. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. All right, cool. So we are here in our uh, special Zoom version of the of the Cinematography Podcast. We have Bradford Young on. We've had, obviously, a lot of cinematographers who've been covered in American Cinematographer. This is the first time we've ever had a DP who is literally on the cover of American Cinematographer as we're speaking to him. It's, uh, it's I'm, a, I'm a little starstruck. Thank nah, you so nah, much nah. for hopping onto Zoom and doing this with us. It's my pleasure. You have an amazing story that we're going to get into, but I kind of like I always want to break the ice and get a sense of where you're coming from when you start what what your process is like creatively. So when you're reading a new script and you're going to work on it, I used to ask the question, do you see it more in composition or do you see it more in, in lighting, which I think is fair. But I'm just wondering, what is your process when you look at a script? How do you start to turn the words into pictures before you're even making the movie? Yeah, when I when. How should I say this? I like stories. I love mm-hmm. stories, you know? Um, I, I really admire story, good storytellers. And so my entryway into every film, whether it be as a viewer or a cinematographer, is never about how is it made or how are we going to make the film. My entryway mm-hmm. into all of these uh, experiences is as a, a lover of stories. So when I receive a script from somebody who's interested in collaborating, you know, at first I read it as a lover of literature, you know? And I know that's always a little bit... That's a hard that's a hard pill for some folks to swallow in the sense that, you know, nobody looks at <laughs> nobody looks at scripts as literature. Right. Um, except for the writers, <laughs> except for the writers. Exactly. You know, they're, they're, they're pieces of literature. People have poured 
a lot of time and a lot of passion and a lot of their own sort of, you know, the best scripts are come from a personal place. They come from a real intimate place. And so, you know, I'm always assuming that the stories that I get or the scripts that I get are coming from somebody's special place. And so I just want to understand what's the story. I want to understand where people have put their heart and put their interest. And so I, I never read it first as a cinematographer. Secondly, then I, once I've read it and, and I feel like I actually really like and respect the written word, I like the literature, then I try to find myself in the story. That's really key. And I think that's the first catalyst or the first sort of initiator of, as me as a cinematographer reading the story. It's like, where am I in that story? Where's my story in that story? You know, where's my life story? Where's my own personal journey in the story? Mm-hmm. And um, it might not be on every page. It may not be on every scene. It might not be in every scene, but it might just be in one moment. It might be in a one line of dialogue. It might be in one description of a sunset. It might be, you know, who knows where it is. But if I can, if I get that feeling, and it's a feeling, it's not, in, it's not as intellectual as it may sound. It's, it's very primal. You know, it's, if once I get that feeling, it's a, that certain kind of pitter patter in the heart or that sort of warmth in my belly or that thing that enters my body and my spirit. Then I start to think about the story as a cinematographer because all, because all of those feelings for me become ultimately become the light story. And, um, after I get that feeling, then, then I'm in. And then it's about having a conversation with the director in in a sense of, you know, what are, what's, what's the process going to be? What are we doing? How are we going to make this? We have a story that has a very particular idea and there's a very particular sort of tenor to the story and how are we adapting to the story, not how is the story adapting to the way we want to work, but how are we adapting Mm -hmm. to the story? And then it's those questions about, you know, I have this idea about working. I have this idea about making films. And is this, does this work for you as the director? Can we collaborate in this way, you know? And if he or she says that it's going to work and I believe that's going to work, then I read it as a cinematographer. Then it becomes more mechanical. It becomes more procedural. Now I'm breaking it down into scenes. I'm looking at stories, the dialectics of a story. I'm looking at how, where are the layers, you know, where are the unseen stories? What are the things that need to be, uh, where's the nuance? What's the, what are the in-between stories? You know, I need to ask questions. I need to understand how can we transform the psychology or the psychosis of a character into a visual mantra? You know, these are the sort of things that I start to try to develop as a cinematographer. Um, now because again, becomes very mechanical. Now, again, all that other stuff that's way more cerebral and sort of out in the cosmos is still there. It informs the conversation, but once I'm in as a cinematographer, all that other stuff I feel is settled in my in my spirit, and now I can start to talk about, all right, what does this look like? Is it spherical? Is it anamorphic? Is it, are we shooting it on film? Are we shooting digital? Like, all those questions start to come up. But before that, I don't really even think about it. I try not to think about it, because if it's not about the story, it's not about anything. And if I don't feel the story, then I'm not there. <laughs> I'm not gonna, you know what I mean? I can, I can lie to myself and tell you, yeah, okay, I get it, I get it, but... That's all going to reveal itself once we start shooting, that if I don't know the story and I'm not connected to the story, then I'm not going to be a good collaborator. So I got to make sure it's the right place for me to be before I uh, commit. And once I, once I commit, these are the sort of hills and valleys we run into in the director, cinematographer, collaborative space, which is, you know, once you in- inoculate me with your idea, once you inoculate me with the story, it's hard for me to turn around. <laughs> it's hard for me to go the other direction because once I'm in it, I'm in it. And that's, you know... That's not always easy. You know, it's not easy for me and it's definitely not always easy for the director. So that's when other part, the other part comes in, which is the part of it that feels more like therapy. It feels more like we're comrade, <laughs> we're at war, you know? That again, I think it's interesting because I feel like at that point, you're no longer a cinematographer again. Now you're just 
a person invested in story. The whole mechanics of cinematography, by the time you get to day 20-something or day 30-something or day four on a film, you stop being a cinematographer again and you now become, you become the audience, you become a participant in the storytelling and all those other things don't really matter, you know? It, be, it all becomes very natural, very organic, exposure, light meter, where I'm putting the lights, all that's already been worked out. So what's left after you've done all your lighting diagrams and you've done all the mechanics of it? What's left? What's left is the, the feeling, the energy, the spirit. And so it's interesting because I think, you know, young people, you know, when you're in film school and you're thinking about being a filmmaker, you know, we have some really incredible young filmmakers here in Baltimore. I'm not saying particularly them, but I'm just saying young people in general, when they look at film because film is so in vogue, when they think about it, they think it's, you know, they think it's, it's a very, it's a linear thing. And it's the thing that they can separate their own personal experience from the art form. But this is the one where you really have to manage that. You have to manage all your expectations, your spiritual expectations, your emotional expectations, because it's a, it's a commitment. It's a, it's a deep commitment. And, uh, and you have to understand how, when it's all over and you've done, and you've wrapped the film, how you go back to your regular life. That's, these are things that, a cinematographer has to carry with them that other folks on the film also have to carry. But as a cinematographer, you, you, you will have your own particular experience with that. Um, you said something that no one's ever really said it to us uh, quite this way. And I think it's really intriguing. So I'm going to dig in a little bit, which mm. is trying to find your own story in the script that you're as you're reading it. Can you give me an example of one of your films where you kind of clearly saw your own story in the script as you were reading it and how that manifest? Yeah. I mean, you know, something like I just make it real, you know, just sort of on the nose, something like Selma is, you know, the only reason why I'm even here on the planet is because within our community, within my community, specifically the black community, we've had dedicated, committed freedom fighters since we were brought here on slave ships. And so that story of Selma has been in my consciousness since I, before I was born as part of my DNA. I had an uncle with, who was there, who marched. I've had, you know, family members who, uh, who knew people who were there. It's, I've been hearing about Selma and the civil rights movement before I can remember. And so not only do I, you know, do I hear a story, the story of, you know, sitting at my grandparents' dinner table and hearing about those moments, not only do I hear that or I see that in the film, I see specific moments in the film that sound just like or feel just like stories I heard listening to my grandparents talk about the movement. But um, it's my story, you know, like I'm, a, I'm an American who understands American history and I understand that it's complicated and it's layered and that in order for us to be better as Americans, whatever, however we evaluate that, value that, we've had to have liberation struggles. We have had to have struggle. And so I see my existence, the essence of my existence here in this, in this country, in this space is came from that, that moment. And so I see myself in that, you know, when I see folks walk across the screen in some of those moments where we were shooting, I saw my aunt or, you know, when oh, it wow. made, you know, it made it, there's a description in the film about folks gathering up at somebody's house and the excitement, excitement they felt, even though they were burdened by the struggle, the excitement they felt entering to somebody's house who fed them a good meal. Like that's, that's me. You know I mean? That's my, I know that feeling, you know, not, not necessarily the intensity of that struggle, but the struggle to survive, the struggle to survive as a black person in this country. And, you know, when you're outside of the house, House, it's a struggle just to leave the house, you know, and not fear for your life. And so to have that struggle outside the house, but enter into somebody's house who, who, where, that, where you can transcend that feeling and feel warm and feel like a human being again, that's, that's in the film. And so Ava was, Ava was a master at crafting that in the writing. And so I saw myself there and with Selma. With something like Arrival, I was a father for the first time. And so, you know, these questions of mortality come up a lot. And so it was apparent in the script. And um, I just felt like I saw myself as a person that has a lot of questions about the world and the universe and the planet that we live on, but also 
know that having children is part of our duty to provide the world with hope. And so that film really hit hit home for me. And wow, um, it, it made me have to be at peace with what the creator, you know, or, you know, the creator has intended for us. And so, you know, you can't change those things. All you can do is while you're in it, try to stay positive and focused on the moments you have together right now. And so that, that script for me is that I had to be there to tell that story. It was an honor, honestly. And, you know, for somebody to work with somebody like Denise was a dream of mine anyway. So that, that makes sense. I think something like Ain't Them Body Saints is more abstract. It's less apparent. And I think mm-hmm. it's less apparent for us because it, just speaking very literally and very frank about it, you know, I think that folks had already made up their mind about what kind of cinematographer I was. I'm a cinematographer of color who mainly shot films about people of color. And so uh, a film like Ain't the Body Saints kind of came out of left field. You know, here I am, a cinematographer that has a particular understanding or a particular values, a particular kind of story they think. And now I'm telling the story that has a majority white cast directed by a white director. But, you know, for me, when I looked in that script, when I looked in that story, I saw the great, great grandchildren of somebody like John Brown, you know? I saw the great, great grandchild of some of our radical people that have made commitments, that made commitments in our, our history who were really about progressive ideas. I saw their grandchildren in, the, in that story. And it was less about seeing me, but it was more about feeling connected to a time in our country where I felt like we were forced to level out the playing field because economically we were looking at race and class equally because we had to, because the Great Depression was on us. And I think that moment really had, the, you know, John Vachon and the Dorothy Langs of the world really inspired me as an image maker because they were with the people, you know, and that, connect, that connects back to Selma, you know, they were with the people, they were people that, who were committed to telling the people's story during that time. And so when I read that script, I kept seeing those images. I kept seeing those images. And it's, it's for me, it's a golden age. And it's, I romanticize that time in American history, you know, from the Great Depression right to the end of World War II. Like there's some rise of a social consciousness, the rise of an egalitarian society that we no longer live in anymore. But that for me was really, is a really powerful moment. And for some reason I kept seeing, and that resonates with me as a human being, but in that script, I kept seeing the grandchildren of that moment. Um, and that was embodied in the characters, you know, Rooney Marr and the Casey Affleck character. So I saw my personal love for that period in American history manifest itself in the story. So I just felt like I had to, uh, I had to be there, you know. That's awesome. I, I really appreciate that because I had a directing teacher uh, named Judith Weston who talked about like when you're first, your first rehearsal for a project, your first meeting, you kind of tell everybody what, what it is about that project that makes you excited about it. And it's sometimes it's really hard to connect to that. Sometimes even something you're genuinely excited about, you know, you're just kind of like there to do the job, you know, one thing after the other. And I love the connection that you have to the passion that drives the story because that, I mean, that that's what's going to get you through, you know, whatever the long days and the lighting setups and all the stuff that you have to do to do your job. Right, right. I mean, you know, you know, also, too, I think I think that's a really actually the subtext of the point you're making is really interesting because I think that's something that we as artists and working in the film world also have to wrestle with, which is, you know, we we're artists working in a very particular special privileged place. You know, it's Mm -hmm. a very special privileged place. We're actually able to tell stories, we're actually able to make most of us actually able to make living wages. And, you know, these the questions that 90 percent of 
the U.S. population are dealing with, we don't have to deal with when we go to work every day. We're working with our friends. We enjoy a certain level yeah. of freedom and on sets. We can come as we are. All these things that we all kind of dreamed about <laughs> as young people, as artists, trying to make a life for ourselves. But I, I still say at the end of the day, you know, some of the great photographers of our time, whether it be a complicated character like Ernest Withers or a really incredible, who's a photographer of the civil rights time or Somebody like Teeny Harris, a wonderful sort of vernacular local community photographer, but definitely an artist from Pittsburgh, from the Hill District. They were working class people. You know what I mean? They still relied on their art form to provide for their families and their communities. Yeah. So I think I think you still got to go in with that fair balance of, I got to get the job done. You know what I mean? <laughs> I got to get the job done. But part of getting the job done also requires you to be unique, um, requires you to be innovative, requires you to bring your voice to the table. And, uh, you know, I think you got to have that balance. You know, I, w- I would, I w- it would be unfair, you know, for me to say I show up to work and I'm always, I'm, and I'm only about what I need from it, or I'm only about telling my story. And if there's no place for that, then I'm not going to be there. No, there's also other things playing out in the background that we have to take into consideration that I, I really respect the idea that, you know, we got to go to work too. You got to work, you know, it's, that's the world we live in, you know? So that's, we have to respect that. And, you know, a friend of mine, Greg Tate, tells a story about Lester Bowie, the great jazz musician. When he moved to Fort Greene, Brooklyn, he made all of his musicians, when they joined his band, buy a brownstone, buy a house. Because he told them, if, you, if, you, if you're in my band and you don't have a house, then you're going to be desperate. And if you're desperate, you're going to make poor decisions. And so that, <laughs> that pragmatism, that pragmatism for me is like, it's key. We need that. You know, we have to also be pragmatic, even though we're like, we're freaks and we're weird and we're flying in the cosmos and we're <laughs> we're on our spiritual we're on our spiritual visual esoteric journeys. We also have to be pragmatists. We have to be we have to take care of business, you know. So I really appreciate her comment, her 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 guidance to you. So that's a real that's real for well, us. And I think it's a hard thing uh, sometimes for people. I know it's a hard thing for me to sometimes articulate to people and and the access that you have to that. I feel like that's the kind of passion that when you see somebody with that passion, you follow them to the ends of the earth. So I'm assuming that like, when people see the passion that you have, you know, the the people on your on your crew understand that they have to live up to your standard for something like that. But uh, let's go back. I mean, I, I've, I've cheated a lot because I, re- I read your interview with American Cinematographer. Uh, so I already know a little bit about, about your backstory, but, uh, tell me a little bit about how, how you found filmmaking and, uh, you know, you have a a very interesting family background. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm not supposed to be a filmmaker. That's, that's for sure. (laughs) I, I am supposed to be a filmmaker. This was supposed to happen, but you know, I didn't know it was going to happen because this wasn't part of my vision. And, Mm -hmm. um, I come from, you know, over a hundred plus years of, uh, morticians, and uh, unfortunately, recently, my uncle passed away. So it's not necessarily in the family hands in the sense of my blood family. But, uh, you know, the person that's running the funeral home now has been at the funeral home since they were a teenager. And now they're an older person. So I grew up around the idea. My understanding for myself is that I was going to behave a certain way, go to school, do well in school, respect authority and go and run the funeral home and I was going to be I was going to wear a suit every day and a tie and I was going to be very conservative about the way I spend my money and I was going to be responsible and put my kids in private schools and do whatever whatever but that wasn't what the universe wanted for me and and part of the reason why they didn't want that I feel like it, that was never going to work out is because essentially my grandparents who were so inf- inspiring and influential in my life as much as they my grandfather in particular wanted me to be I felt like had a vision for me 
uh, which I really, really respect. And I respect more as an older person, half of me. That wasn't really what I wanted for myself. But my grandmother, who was also part of the conversation, was also a lover of art. She was a lover of culture. And that didn't come from the fact that she, you know, just because she was the wife of a mortician, you know, that meant that, and, you know, especially in the black community in that context, they had some resources, they had access to some money, you know, so they were able to collect art, collect books, they had an extensive library around art, science, technology, religion, spirituality, they were very well educated, they could have really interesting debates about all these things, they were also involved in the movement, so it wasn't just armchair stuff, they also actually lived by what they believed in, but, you know, they were literally setting me up, it was like, <laughs> yes, you're going to be a mortician, but at the same time, don't sit at the adult table when we're having our conversations about politics, go sit at that other table. But sitting on that table were all these coffee table books. You know, there were all these compilations of photographs and painters and museums that they had visited all over the world. And, you know, their house was, was adorned with vases, big, huge, you know, pieces of ceramics from, from Indonesia or, oh, wow. you know, a, a fertility, a beautiful sort of hand car fertility doll from, from West Africa. All these things, they were everywhere. You know, the feet, the, the carpet that we walked on was from Turkey that they actually got in Turkey and, and bartered for themselves. Like these, I knew this about my grandparents. It was in my consciousness because they were, these are the stories they told us, but all those textures and all those things that were, I was looking at, they were all, that was, that was what, that's how I saw myself. That was, I envisioned myself being the artist making the fertility doll or the ceramicist making the, the big piece of beautiful uh, ceramic that was sitting in the corner with these huge vases they had. Or, you know, the, the person that would come and re reupholster their chairs. It was clear to me that that person was an artist. Like, so for me, I, I, that's where I saw myself. I fit into that story. That's where I wanted to be. And I also had an uncle who was, his name was Leon Bibb. He was a, he was passed away recently. He was a very well-respected folk musician. He was in the movement. He was great friends and comrades with Paul Robeson and Oh, he wow. acted in a few films with Harry Belafonte. Actually, my cousins are uh, Paul Robeson's grandchildren. My cousin is oh, Eric wow. Bibb. He's a respected blues musician, blues guitarist. But, you know, he would come. My uncle lived in Canada. He, was, he passed away in Vancouver. He, he couldn't live a life in America anymore because he was blacklisted during the McCarthy era. He went to Canada and, and lived the rest of his life out. But, you know, when he would come from Canada and be at the table, it would be my grandfather on one end of the table. It would be my uncle on the other end of the table. And they, they, have, they have definitely had their opinion about where humanity should be headed, but they were very different opinions. But they knew humanity should head somewhere better than where they are, where we are. But their opinion about how that should happen was very different. And, you know, as, as much as I um, really feared my grandfather in the, the healthiest ways and really respected him in the healthiest ways, I, when he spoke about things, I didn't, it didn't click for me. It was, my uncle was the one that clicked. You know, he was an artist and he was talking about the world in a way that really clicked for me. So, that was my intro. That's the beginning of me understanding that ultimately I want to be an artist. I don't know how to tell my family that. I'm really scared to tell them that. But I'm gonna find my. I'm gonna go to college and hide out in another state far away so, from home. And when I get there, I'll find myself. I'll find my way there. You know. How did you tell your family that? So I, you know, a series of events happened that kind of gave me some distance. My mother passed away when I was younger. I was 15. I went to go live with my father in Chicago, Illinois. My father was a very different kind of parent with a certain very different kind of parenting skills, lack of parenting, parental skills, but he, he seemingly, but he was a wonderful parent, um, opened up a lot of avenues for me to be explore myself as I felt I should be the mm -hmm. person who I envisioned for myself. He told he he cleared the way for me to be that person. And I'm not saying to my family before I left Louisville, Kentucky, didn't didn't wasn't open to clearing the way for me. But there would have had to have been some discussion about it. Versus with my father, it was no discussion. He knew me. He knows me. He knew what it was about. And he was happy to accommodate that that energy. And so going to him 
and understanding that I had his support made it a lot easier for me to go back to the rest of my family and say, um, even though at that time my, my father, my father had been, you know, was not living with me since I was five years old and he was off living his life. At that moment, I felt he, that he empowered me to, to claim this life for myself. And, and mm. you know, as soon as I got to Chicago, I changed everything, you know. I changed the way I wore my hair. I changed the, the, the food I ate. I changed the, the things I was doing in school. I changed my interests. I was spending a lot of time at, at art galleries and spending a lot of time with young people who are already 16, 17 years old, and they looked like they were going to have an art career. You know, they looked like they were headed that direction, and some, and some of them have gone on to be great artists of our time. And so that, that was a really influential period for me. And I felt like, well, you know, if these folks can do it and their parents can be proud of them, then I can do this and I can claim this for myself and not feel fear, fearful about it. And I did it. And but going to school is really what changed. And going to school is where you find the mentorship and the sort of pragmatism that I think you were alluding to earlier, the sort of pragmatism that takes all that young energy, you know, as an artist, where it just feels like. I'm just going to make anything and I'm going to do art for art's sake. But when I went to Howard, I met Haile Garima. Haile helped me focus that energy, you know, and all my professors at Howard, but mainly Haile helped me focus that energy on um, something that was more, how should I say this? It was more, it felt more structured for who I am. It didn't feel general, you know? When you say you want to be a filmmaker, I always look at it in two ways. And not in, now I'm trying to be binary, but I look at it as, you know, the filmmaker that is very accommodating and is happy to tell the story by being walked through it in a particular way, or you have the auteur, or you have the person that's an independent filmmaker that says, you know, I claim this is my voice and I claim this is the way I'm gonna tell the story and I'm gonna tell it by any means necessary. That, as an 18-year-old, 17-year-old kid, thinking that film was only about, you know, Steven Spielberg, Goonies, The Color Purple, and all those films that I'm not necessarily watching anymore now, but mm -hmm. then to have the counterpoint of somebody saying, no, film also looks like this. Film is... Spike Lee's, you have to look at Spike Lee's films differently now. You got to look at it through a different lens. The lens you were looking at it through before was the lens of Amblin Films or was the lens of all of the great Hollywood directors that didn't have your didn't have your interest at hand, you know? And they made mistakes. Look at this character over here. That character's a stereotype. Or look at that lighting on that character there. That's bad lighting on that character there. Or looking at picking apart all the films that I felt were like part of the lexicon of my like childhood life. They now were being turned over and upside down and then showed me a film. They showed me a film that's now to me is a perfect, a, a masterpiece. Let's say a killer, a, a, a killer of sheep or a bush mom or... or Daughters of the Dust, it just felt totally different. It felt totally different. It felt like um, when you first watch those films, a film of, let's say, a film of Oscar Michaud, you hear it and you say, oh, that's bad sound. And to have a professor tell you, that's not bad sound. That's the sound that needed to be there. And that's a different way of thinking, you know? What is mm -hmm. bad sound? What is bad cinematography? What is an underexposed image? Now you're starting, I'm starting to rethink everything that I thought was supposed to be a particular way. It's not that. It's, not, it's, it's based on the artist. The artist gets to make the decision on what it is. And so I, I'm telling this whole story to just say that, to get back to what your original question is, which is how, when did I decide to like make that decision and claim it from it? I had to, it took all of these steps. It took all of these things where I had to build my confidence, mm -hmm. my confidence as an, cause when, it's one thing we say, I want to be an artist or I'm going to be an artist. And then when you go tell your parents, I'm going to be an artist. First thing they say is what kind of artist are you going to be? What is, what's what's going to be your medium? How are you going to make money? You know, you need to have, I think you have to have every, be clear on all the answers. You don't have to have the right answer. You, that's for, only for you to determine, but you have to have the answer. And I want to be armed with all of the references and say, listen, there's a film movement here and there's a f culture of people that are making films this way over here. And I can be part of that. And I'm, I feel like I'm part of that. That was a really 
And that didn't happen until I was 18. That didn't happen until I was like 19 years old. So it took mm-hmm. a whole time, you know, before I could really claim was it, it for myself. When you were at college that you started uh, honing in on filmmaking? Yeah, it was in college. I went to college thinking I was going to be a journalist, actually. And mm-hmm. I had that first, I had that first uh, 01 English class, you know, I'm writing in my whole, you know, I'm trying to be, I'm trying to be Toni Morrison. Or I'm trying to be Aikwe Arma. I'm trying to, you know, my poetry, what have you. And, <laughs> and then I get the, I get the, I get the paperback, and it's it's all xed up with the red marks. It's not, not nothing, nothing I wrote is left on the page. It's just corrections. And then it's like, okay, I, I guess I'm not a writer. <laughs> so I had a, uh, I was just kind of walking through the uh, School of Communications uh, building, and a friend of mine who's now a friend of mine, came to me and said, what are you doing? What are you trying to study? I said, you know, I'm trying to be a journalist and I'm trying to figure out. She's like, ah, you don't do that here. It's only broadcast journalism, you know. But there's a Howard <laughs> University film, <laughs> there's a Howard University film organization. You should come over and check us out. So I went to the office the next day and I literally opened the door to the office or walked in or what have you. And there were all these people that I just felt like were all my friends in Chicago. They were young, they were artists. They were looking at, there were books in the room. There were books that I wanted to read and they were talking about art and culture in a way that I wanted to be talking about art and culture because I didn't have that language. I didn't have that. I didn't have the reference. They were talking about artists that I, I knew about, but I didn't know their work or I didn't even know who they were. Those, those things made me feel a certain way about who I was. And I wanted to be part of that conversation. I wanted to, I, I wanted to know who these artists were. And so uh, whether it be film or visual artists, film artists working in film, or artists working in other mediums, I want to be part of the conversations. So that's, how, that's how I found my way there. And then mm-hmm. from there, it was like literally a series of years until about 27, 28 years old when I decided that, okay, I'm going to do the cinematography thing, you know, I'm going to do it full, full time. I guess my wife would probably debate that I was already had that wrapped it. I was already wound up with that, but, <laughs> but it feels like it happened a little bit later, but yeah. Well, I, I got a question. Uh, go for uh, it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, man. How did your your grandfather or or you know the the morticians in the family take it when <laughs> you said hey the mortician's life is not is not going to be for me I mean I'm sure there was probably yeah. some disappointment but but you know were they supportive did they support you on your journey they never really they you know what it wasn't that they were they weren't supportive the thing about it is that you know that was like when I was what I was talking about earlier was me and my in my 15 year old body but you know at 42 now 43 about to turn 43 it it wasn't that they didn't respect my decision. He was still my grandparent. He wasn't my parent. You know what I mean? That's a difference. Yeah. Grandpa, grandparents have a particular kind of love and appreciation and acceptance for who you are that your parents don't have for you. So that warm thing you get from your grandparents, that's a real thing. So as much as he was, felt like he was being very rigid, he, he loved, he, he was, all he wanted for me is just to be healthy and well, but he, he loved the fact that I was exploring ideas for myself and, you know, um, and so that, so I know that they were very supportive. The thing is that cinema is such a mystified art form. And it's specifically as, you know, as a black person in America, I know how mystified it is in the black community. For us, we think it's red carpet or we think it's this thing that Hollywood puts in our brain, right? And so for my grandfather, he didn't understand, what is, what do you mean make a movie? Like there's a camera person, there's a, you want, so hold on, you're gonna go to college, you're gonna study to be a camera person on the film and they offer those courses? Like those are the kind of questions that he had. And it's it. And so for them, it was just about not having an understanding of what it is, because it's not at that time, you know, we knew zero filmmakers like zero. There were zero filmmakers in my community. There were none. You know, we didn't know anybody. It was they couldn't offer. They couldn't say, 
Okay, oh, you want to be a filmmaker? Hey, you know what? You should go spend the summer in L.A. with this aunt or uncle or this neighbor or this friend of a neighbor who knows somebody who knows somebody. Like, there wasn't even that sort of distant, distant, distant connection. It didn't exist. There was nobody. The only thing they could say was, so hold on, you want to be like Spike Lee? Or hold up, you want to be like John Singleton? They didn't even have the reference for all of the underground independent filmmakers of color that had come before Spike that made it possible for Spike to be a filmmaker. They didn't even, didn't even know about that. They didn't even know about the Oscar Micheaux of the world. You know, even though they were consumers of black and white cinema and classic cinema, they didn't even know about all of the filmmakers of color who were making films in the silent era. They didn't even know about that history. So for, for me, for them, it was a hard concept to wrap their mind around because when they think about art or they think about entertainment, is Hollywood films as, as entertainment doesn't equal art to them. That's not art, that's entertainment. We go to the eat popcorn and be pacified and come out feeling happy. And then there's art. Art is paint, sculpture, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's sculpture, there's yeah. painting, there's... And if I had said, I want to be a painter, they would then that would have made sense for them. Oh, you want to be a painter? Oh, okay, you're right, of course. You want to be like Aaron Douglas or you want to be like... Uh, John Biggers or they, whoever they would have they would have brought up at the time so that may or I want hey, you know I want to be a jazz musician I want to play trumpet oh okay you want to be like you want to be Clifford Brown or you want to be whoever they would have had that reference so filmmaking was like I don't understand it I would support you but I don't I don't get it and and can you pay your bills <laughs> that's a big can one you pay, yeah. that's a big yeah, that's one a big. can you pay and can, can you pay back that student loan bill that you have when you get out of when you get out of school you know so um, what did yeah. you do when you got out of school? What was what were your steps towards becoming a cinematographer at that and, point? And, and what city are you living in right after after college? Well, right after undergrad, I'm still in D.C. and actually continue my uh, my graduate, I continue undergraduate studies at Howard. So I stayed very close to Howard, and, and in particular, I stayed close to Highly. Were you Highly studying? Grima. Was were you studying film there? Yeah, in the graduate program at Howard, you're just studying film. You nice. know, so you get a you get a good dose of uh, practical work and you get a good dose of theory, history, et cetera. So it was a very well-rounded program. You know, we, we watched a lot of movies, talked a lot about movies and we also made a lot of movies. So there was you, it was really intense in that way. There was no there were no tracks. So I wasn't necessarily on the cinematography track. The way I started shooting and really got focused on shooting, it was that, you know, it's like any school. Well, now it's different. There's so many cinematographers and there's so many good cinematographers at like 19, 20 years old, which is crazy. When we were 19, 20, it was like a handful, maybe mm -hmm. a couple, you know, and two of the ones that I wanted to be like actually went to Howard. So I had that kind of sitting on my show, Ernest Dickerson, Malik Saeed and Arthur Jaffa. So they, had, they were actually at the university that I went to before I got there. So I had that reference. But 99% of the people that go to film school want to be directors or producers. Yeah. Because that's where the money, that's where the money is, or that's where the control is. That's where the dictatorship also, is. It's, it's, yeah, it's got the aura, aura of glamour over it, and cinematography is, is, is kind of a mysterious art for a lot of people. It's a very mysterious art. You put that, you got a box with a little white globe on the top of it. You keep walking up to people's faces and pressing a button, and then that, what are you doing? Or why are you carrying that heavy camera? You know what I mean? All the things that just don't look glamorous. It's like let me stay. So nobody, nobody, you know, there only there was me. There was a guy. There's a guy, and I'm gonna, and I hope he hears this. I'm gonna shout him out, and I hope every cinematographer in the world that thinks they're special and thinks that they, they got it made and that they're the ones. Remember, there were always, there's always somebody on your path, on your journey that was better than you, that was more competitive, that was in competitive in their own way, and they were a winner, and they were a better cinematographer. They were more clear on their art form than you. But it just happens to be that something turns or switches. Maybe they make a choice for themselves, like they aren't interested in being in the industry or it doesn't look attractive to them and they don't feel like the art's going to be supportive. So they go on to seek other things. 
The guy I want to shout out is a brother named Burns Forsyth. Burns Forsyth was the other cinematographer in the film program with me. And he was a far better artist, a far better artist. He, his knowledge was expansive. He could talk about all of the things that I wanted to talk about and I can't even talk about now, he was talking about then. When you talk, when you talk about a, a filmmaker that was about vision and cinema as a, as a total existential thing, this guy was incredible. And he's not making films anymore. He made the choice. He didn't want to make films that way anymore. And he's off doing what he's doing now. But he was the other person who had, it was a non-competitive, horizontal camaraderie towards making images. And it just happened to be the two of us were the ones that were able to, sh we shot all the films. So that's how we got into, that's how we became <laughs> cinematographers. It was like, well, I guess I'm, you know, we're shooting all the films, so we're going to be cinematographers now. So that's, that's how, that's how I got into it, you know, and that's where I was. I was in D.C. and uh, I stayed in D.C. until 2005. And um, shortly after I met my, my wife, I moved to New York. And when I moved to New York is when I started to really, okay, now I'm here. I got to figure out a way to take care of my, my, uh, my partner, I've, even though she was taking care of me, you know, take care of this, these, these roles. I had to play these roles. So I got to, you know, make sure I'm taking care of my business and paying bills. And so that's when I realized, okay, I'm in New York now. It was an interesting time to be in New York. And that's when I started really focusing on shooting. And it started with little promos, you know, it started with my friend Logan Coles, who is now business partner with Chadwick Boseman. You know, Chadwick Boseman oh, yeah. plays Black Panther. Of course. Chad Logan, Chad Logan and I all went to Howard at the same time together. We knew each other from Howard and Logan at the time was a producer at Nickelodeon. And he, uh, when I first got to New York, he knew I was there. I'd already shot student films. I shot one of his films. And, you know, this is, this is where camaraderie and community come together. When I moved to New York, he, he gave me some of my first jobs at Nickelodeon. I remember the first time he, uh, he offered me a job in there shooting a promo at Nickelodeon or whatever it was. They called me to get my rate. <laughs> and I like, uh, you know, I quoted something crazy. And he had to call me and say, uh, no, you're not going to make that. You're going to make this. And, this and, and for me, I was like, oh my God, it's so much money. You know, it was nothing, but and that, and that, and that became, that became, you know, and that, and, you know, and that goes to show, you know, is you make films with your friends, you know, and that's part of what we, what we bear witness to. So, yeah. Were you mostly focused on uh, being a cinematographer at that time or were you doing other things in the camera department to, to kind of nah. keep? Yeah, I got, I got lucky in that sense. I didn't have to work my way up. Yeah. through a department, you know, um, I got very lucky. So uh, about this time you're, you're working on promos. I, I, I love to look at people's filmography and sort of figure out where some of the big breaks come and the way this industry works. And I'm sure that you'll agree is that it's not any really one break. It's successfully executing on one opportunity after another, after another and building. And you, you'd never even get to that, you know, that big break opportunity unless you had a hundred really good ones before that, that got there. But I know a lot of young DPs, a lot of people starting out, they don't always want to do shorts. They don't want to do short films. They, they don't right. look at short films as like, that's going to be a, that's going to be a break for me. But I got to imagine that shooting the short pariah became a really big break <laughs> for you, uh, you because listen. of course, yeah, because hey, man, uh, you hit it, you hit it right on the money, man. I'm trying to tell you right now, you know, if they, if I had not met D Reese, I would not be here talking to you guys right now. That's just how it is. And unfortunately somebody lost their life in order for me to be able to work with D. Reese, you know? So oh, no. you oh, never wow. know. You never know how you get. You never know how these things are going to unfold for you. But I'm trying to tell you that if it wasn't for the D's vision, her love, then I would not be here even having this conversation with you. Pariah, Pariah changed my life, you know? And I met, and I met, I met D on the humble. You know, we were working on 
a second year NYU student film for the for the the younger brother of somebody that I went to film school with, who were both both of them were incredible filmmakers. Mike Brown is his name. He's from Rich. He's from uh, from Virginia. I met him at NYU. He was there with D, and they were students together in the graduate program. And uh, D was there working, working with me on the film. And after we during during that shoot, we talked a lot. And at the end of the shoot, she asked me would I be interested in making a documentary film with her. And on the, on the we were in Liberia making a film about her family. Her family has such a rich, interesting history. We were there making a film about her grandmother in Africa, and uh, she told me that she had written a script on the. Uh, set of Inside Man with Spike Lee when she was uh, working in the, in the script supervisor department mm-hmm. with Sherry. And so she told me that she had written this thing and she wanted to share a few pages with me when we got back to the States. And she did. And uh may have been 13 pages, 18 pages. I can't remember. But I remember reading it. And I remember my wife came home from work that day and I said, man, Dee, I just read Dee's script. It's amazing. It was just amazing. It was like I never read anything like that. It was, she's such an incredible writer. And there was another person who I went to graduate school with. Her name is Lisa Jones. She's from North Carolina. She was also that poet, poet in film writing. And I didn't know anybody that wrote as luscious or as delicious as Lisa. But when I read Pariah, that short script, it was just like, how can you be so clear? How can you be such a good writer this so early, this early in your development? Like she's such <laughs> a good writer, you know. And uh, and just things, you know, things worked out, and I was able to uh, shoot the film with her. But that was that was a break. Honestly, man, the rest of it is not a. I never look at things as breaks, you know. I never thought about it that way, but but if we're thinking about it in that on those terms, then D D is the D open the door, you know. There was a lot of talk about Pariah at uh, Sundance that year. I remember that was that was a big deal. So right, yeah, right. That, 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 <laughs> and and people were talking about you. People were talking about the DP of Pariah. I was I was there. I remember wow. I remember hearing a lot of conversations about it. So it's like wow. yeah, it was it wow. was it, it was it was big. So that was, that was wow. really great. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. I mean, that's that, that's that, you know, I think Pariah is one of those ones where the story, tell, the story, I didn't have to do much, man. The story was there. The lighting and the, everything we did in that film was determined, told by the story. And Dee was so clear on Alike's character. So it had to be that colorful because she's a chameleon. She, we mm-hmm. had to see her changing colors. Every place she went, she put her foot down. She had to be part. She, it, it, it couldn't just be suggested in the way she moved or what she said. It had to be for Dee. This is what makes Dee a great filmmaker, one of the greatest of her times. That she also thinks visually, and she made it real clear to me at the top that I needed to have this. We need to see these things switching gears, and it can't be suggested. It has to be felt. It has to be seen, and that that's a testament to her genius, man. So, uh, so was that the first time that you'd been to the Sundance Film Festival with one of your projects? Yeah, it was. Uh, I'd never been before. I never actually, honestly, I never really wanted to go, but <laughs> I never, it's I never cold. been before. It's cold. Yeah, yeah. I never been. I never it's been. It was the first time. Yeah, when you have a movie there, that's a good reason to go. Yeah, no, that's the best reason <laughs> to go freeze your ass. Off. I was actually, I was actually, I was working too. I was, I was shooting a documentary with the wonderful, the great documentary filmmaker John Fine. We were doing a, a film about. Puff Daddy at the time, a documentary mm-hmm. that was very John Fine. So it wasn't it wasn't just about Puff, the hip hop mogul was he was doing something really interesting at the time. And we were making a film and he was going to be at the festival because at that year he was in uh, Raising in the Sun. Mm-hmm. And so I, I went working, <laughs> I went to work and uh, just happened to have a film there at the same time. So it was that was for the short. That was for the short. And then, for Pariah. Uh, you know, to, right. So. First like have, having something that was kind of a buzzworthy uh, short at Sundance, did that get your phone ringing or like I, I'm always interested when people have like that moment. Like, what was the immediate fallout of that? Nah, man, nah, <laughs> not not nah, 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 nah. That's all. That's all. That's all. You know, 
Actually, yeah. nobody's ever said yeah. that their phone started ringing after they <laughs> even won awards. It's no, on it. no, yeah. I mean, Ava, Ava won the directing award in 2012. And, you know, she's she classic story about how you know the phone didn't ring at all. You know, and and everybody knows Sundance is like the Independent Filmmaker Academy Awards. So if you win an award there, you know, you're supposed to catapult your career into the 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 solar system, but that didn't happen, you know, and I think, and I think, you know, listen, we've had to force ourselves into a conversation about diversity and inclusion, et cetera, et cetera, and the lack of diversity in the industry. But the story, the story still goes on, but let our story be, let our stories be real evidence of how, you know, they just didn't see us, man. They didn't see us. Mm -hmm. They didn't validate our stories. You know, they, they respected Dee because she, she told a story well, she tells a story well, and it was undeniable. And they respected that about her, but they also feared that about her. You know what I mean? Because she potentially would take somebody else's place. And as we know, that they can't stop us. They they can't stop it when you're a good storyteller and you're persistent and you're focused. They still can't stop you. Dee's still making every film film she wants. She's still one of the greatest filmmakers of our time. But they didn't they didn't see us. You know because they, it was still stories about black people. You know they were still little small independent stories about black people. I, I actually had an agent, man. I had an agent <laughs> come up to me said to me, you know, when I first saw the first film, I thought you were just a fluke. Then I saw the second film and I thought you were still just a fluke. It took me up until this film to realize that everything that you were doing had purpose. And you know, that's, 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 those are the kind of things you hear. I got a letter from an agency that was recommended, somebody recommended me to an agency and I, and I uh, wrote them a letter and sent them a reel and they sent me back. And on that, on that reel was Mississippi Damned and Pariah the Short <laughs> that I sent them. And the letter back to me was, uh, we don't see the scope. We don't see scope in your work. And, you know, these are films all shot on 35 millimeter. They, there was not, there's not, there's not a small shot in any of those films. That, you know, at the time they weren't considered, I consider, you know, considered classics, but at the time they were, they had, they had feeling people were touched by those films. You know, I knew that yeah. even though I made, made them, I knew that those films were talking to people in a real deep personal way. They, they had to because of the subject matter, the story, but I, uh, you know, they, they didn't see scope in the work and the subtext of scope in the work is we don't, we only see black people on the screen. So we don't see the scope. We don't see how we can take you out into this industry and introduce you as a cinematographer where all you have is people of color. You've only photographed people of color. These are the things that I've heard along the way, you know? And so, no, my phone didn't ring because I was just still a fluke. You know what I mean? And the, all that all that darkness and all the color that in the, on the screen was just a, uh, was a rendering of a mistake. It wasn't a rendering of intention, of history, of reflecting. And so I think, but that's, uh, those are the things we have to be honest with. But, you know, honest, those are things that I can say and talk about now because they didn't matter to me. You know what I mean? I mm. had my, and, I, and, I, and I had my own personal battle. I had my own personal inferiority complex around what people were saying to me and the kind of films that I wanted to make or the photography that I really liked that I couldn't get out of my own body. See, it's one thing when somebody tells you that they don't see scope in your work. You can turn, you can turn away from that and kind of that'll go away. You'll forget about it with a couple of good nights sleep. But when you have your own inferiority complex in your own mind, when you feel like your own mind is colonized by an industry that you're working in because you can't achieve the photographic intensity of those bigger films. That's the real work that I had to do. That's yeah. the, still the work that I'm doing now. You know what I mean? Like that comp, that comparative thing oh, that, or that, that, that imposter syndrome, or, you know, you look at the one, somebody's film, a friend at NYU, and I'm looking at his film saying, how, how did he get his film to look that way? Why come my film doesn't look that way? Well, his film's never going to look like my film because he's not me and I'm not him. Yeah. We have two different <laughs> stories. We like different things in photography. You know what I mean? It's like no two stories are going to look the same because the artist behind the camera is different. It's impossible to totally appropriate somebody's vision, to totally appropriate somebody's frame. It just can't happen. It's not possible. 
you can pay homage, but you cannot totally extract and appropriate it frame for frame. Yeah. You know, we said, you know, that's not possible. So you, you have to be your own storyteller. You have to tell your own story through your own images. You also have to be resilient. And what you just described is mm. someone who's really resilient because the, le- the level of condescension. <laughs> I mean, it's like the level of how uh, condescending, you know, people can be in the in this industry is, is unreal. And you have to be resilient. You have to you have to move forward. And I, I think it, I think it's a, a great example of, of really you say you can forget about it after a couple of days. Some people can't forget about it. Some some people yeah, that, that's, that's true. that that that's deeply true. affects them. Hey, as speaking of uh, resilience and I want to move this forward since we've been talking yeah, for yeah. a while here and we got we got a bunch of great stuff to talk about. Uh, Ava Duvernay. Uh, how how, yes. how do how do you guys hook Seriously. up? And, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, let's, let's move into Selma. Let's 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 well, talk I, about that. Yeah I, th- yeah. I, yeah, I think we should we should just jump into Selma because Selma. you know yeah, that was no problem. Uh, yeah, I mean that that was. I know you say you don't really look at things as a, as a break, but like Selma is the first time that you shot a feature that like really you know it's at the Oscars and people it, it was yeah. A, yeah one of the biggest buzz films of that year. Hundred percent. Right. Right. Well, you know the community's small. You know what I mean. So Ava had seen Mississippi Dam at a slam dance years before. And so she was already going to make, she had already made a, a, a feature film called I Will Follow that she called and asked me to, she already seen Mississippi Dam and she's seen Pariah the Short. And I think Pariah the Feature wasn't out yet. Maybe, maybe it was coming or something, but she, you know, she's seen work that I've done before and, you know, she's an artist. She sees stuff, you know, she's clear, you know, and she's very curatorial. So it's not going to be you for every film. It's going to be the you for the right films. You know what I mean? Like she's, mm-hmm. She's she's loyal and committed, but she's also um, intelligent and has good taste. So, you know, she was going to make a film called I Will Follow. She called me to see if I was available. I wasn't available. And then she called me for Middle of Nowhere. And we went we made Middle of Nowhere together. And it was it was incredible because she took that story that people feel, think they have all figured out before they see it. And then when they saw it, when you see it, you see that there's a filmmaker that can tell. This is about the filmmaker's vision. It's about the lens, the way they see the world. They took that that story that we feel like it was exalt. We felt like it was exhausted. And we've seen it a million times before. She told that story, but she put Ava DuVernay, DuVernay on top of it. So, you know, that solidified our collaboration and, and uh, the fact that we enjoy working together. And then Selma came. And, um, you know, with Selma, it was just... It was the easiest film to make because it makes sense. And again, I can't speak for Ava, but I, but from a cinematographer's perspective, it was the easiest film to make sense because it makes sense because we, both of us, her father's from Lowndes County, which is where Selma is, you know, he's from that area. As a kid, he watched the marchers go from, from you know, walk, they walked the highway, he saw them walking the highway. And so uh, it's a very personal story for both of us, but it was the hardest film to make because you're making that film about your story. I think every imperfection and every moment that it, that doesn't work, every moment that works beyond your wildest dreams is a is us feeling safe with one another making that film. That's a film where you celebrate all of it, the imperfections and the and the places where it's masterful. And I think, you know, what's great about that film is that it put us in conversation with filmmakers who we our elders, honorary elders, filmmakers we respect, it put us in conversation with them because they finally saw that you can merge this fiercely independent filmmaking ethos with this industry thing. And uh, I think that's what you're seeing there is a whole lot of years of us watching films from filmmakers that we really, really respect and love and really paying honor and trying to honor them and the aesthetics and the look of the film, but also trying to find our own voice at the same time. And, uh, you know, for us, that was what made it more successful even. I know I can, you know, I think I can say this for Ava as well, that it made us 
really appreciate the journey. The accolades and the awards didn't mean as much as somebody like Haile Garima or Charles Burnett or, or Uzan Palsi or some of the great filmmakers that we all love. Our honorary elders come to us and say, thank you for making that film and you did a great job. Like, it wasn't perfect. You could have done better, but you did a good job. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? And that, nobody, but nobody's making a you know, perfect film. Is that's like that doesn't really exist. But um, yeah, you know that was that's the win for us. You know that. And again, you know, again, I go back to the, you know, I didn't think anybody was going to see that film and think about it for anything else other than what it was. I thought they would probably not. I just assumed that we would not receive the respect of our colleagues because I just didn't think that that was going to happen. And so we didn't, none of us rested in that. We just rested in the fact that we got the movie done, you know, and that was what we celebrated and that our elders respected the fact that we made the film, the people we care about, love about, respected the film. And that's but what I mean, mattered. You know? The fact that it was such a giant success and that it, it really did have cultural resonance and nominated I mean, for best picture of the year. Yeah. Yeah. I yes. Mean, I mean, it's like, that's, that's, I mean, you shot the movie, you shot a movie nominated for best picture of the year. It's like, this is, this is a major cultural, re, you know, resonance with, with people from all over. So that's, that's so huge. At yeah. that point. Well, you know, the, but you know, the, you know, the cultural resonance though, I'll say, I'm sorry. I know it's not, not, we're not debate. We're not, this is not a debate podcast, but you know, the culture. <laughs> feel, feel free to debate with us. <laughs> feel free. <laughs> this is, yeah. You know, we, we can you know, go anywhere. The, yeah. But you know, the, you know, the most important, the cultural resonance of that film is that, the most important thing about Selma is not the fact, listen, the fact it got nominated for Academy Award, however you value that, if you respect it, it means a lot to you. If you don't respect it, doesn't mean anything to you. I respect both ways. Mm-hmm. But for me, the, co- the resonance of that moment for me is that Ava was able to make another film. See, that's, that's, that's what's important, is that Ava was able to make another film. She secured an opportunity for her, for us, for her to keep stay a working director, which is an issue, for black women, women of color, in particular, women directors, period. She secured a place for herself to keep working, but she did it in such an undeniably artistic way. Mm-hmm. Nobody could nobody could say that she's not an artist now. Nobody could say that she's not, as the word that they all like to throw out, she's not an auteur. You know, if you want if we if we want to if we want to say there's a cultural resonance for us, it was she got to make another film. But for majority cultural folks who put a lot of uh, value and a lot of coinage in, in the accolades and the whatever, whatever, and the comparisons. But at that point, she was the equal to P.T. Anderson. She was the equal to all of the great, the, the James Gray. She was she's in that conversation now. You know what yeah. I'm saying? She's the, she's she's the she's in the conversation with the with the with the Kelly Reinhardt's and the Patty Jenkins now. Like she's part of the conversation. And uh, that's one thing, you you know, that I would be be silly and be petty to say that that's not important. That is important because she now she gets to make another film because she's tried and she's true and she's done it multiple times and showing you that she's a real voice and she's a real force and that you can't deny her an opportunity. It's more, I think it's more important for us to, for her to continue to make films so we can keep experiencing that euphoria of watching her movies. You know, that, that for me is the, is the, is the cultural shift, you know, that's, that's a black woman in Hollywood who got to make another film and that does not, that rarely happens. That rarely happened at that point. It wasn't happening at all. You know what I mean? Well, well, she's now made several and several so, great ones exactly. that you can, that you gonna can go and, watch. Yeah, it's, hey, it's, and she's mean, gonna keep making them. She's gonna keep making them, and she's and she's affording other women and other filmmakers 
an opportunity to keep keep making you know it it, it wasn't immediately and I, I i know this is not intended to be this ava duvernay love fest right now but she made 13th <laughs> oh, and sure. 13th is like the seminal movie about uh about the prison system in america it's like it's it's right. incredible we, we we had kira kelly on the show talk talk about that and stuff and it's like but one that, of my that heroes movies, one of my that, one of my heroes all right. Well, well uh, that movie's amazing. She's gotten to keep doing all kinds of stuff after that. So, yeah, no fluke. I mean, that is that's like she's she's a huge talent. So please tell me that after the success of Selma, that your phone started ringing then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know. <laughs> well, I say I say I'll say that, you know, listen, there was a sweet thing, a few films that happened. Well, and you had quite a filmography before Selma. It's not like you know, it's not like that was your second thing. You you'd done a lot before you, you got to that. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, I think working with Ava gave me the ability to work with a certain kind of director, a certain mm-hmm. level of director. Because the directors that I really wanted to work with, outside of the film directors I already worked with, who had got me to where I am. If it wasn't for them, I wouldn't be where I was anyway. But that yeah. level, those those dream, those dream collaborations, that's like still like the little film nerd who wants to, you know, go work with whatever, whatever. All those folks I want to collaborate, really, they they respected Ava. So they were like, well, if he shoots for Ava, then he can come shoot for me now. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that's, that's how those things work out. But I think also, too, at the same time, you know, I think a most violent year, if there was no most violent year, I wouldn't have got a rival. There was no Selma, I wouldn't have gotten a rival. The two films that follow me to every project are Selma and Arrival, for sure. So uh, that was part one of our interview with Bradford Young. Part two, we'll start up with him talking about Arrival and the stuff he's done since Arrival. And that would uh, that would include uh, uh, movies like Solo, you know, Star Wars movie, and uh, yeah, little little movies little like movies Solo. like Arrival, Solo, and um, When They See yeah. Us, which of course is a, a fantastic Netflix series you can watch right now. Just powerful stuff. I, I just I love yeah. this interview. So Ilya. I assume it must be time to pay the bills because that's what time it always is right now. It's true. It is time to pay the bills. So we have to thank our wonderful sponsor, Aperture, maker of high quality, fine LED lights for uh, professionals, for amateurs and everyone in between. The thing I'm going to talk about today is a little bit more on the consumer side. You can get this for a a very inexpensive price. I want to say it comes in about $150, $149, and it's called the Aperture MX and the Aperture MX is a teeny tiny little light, easy to fit in your pocket, rechargeable, and it's what they call bicolor. So you can give you a daylight color, it can give you an indoor incandescent light color, and you can fade between them. And it has a little diffuser that goes on top of it. And the, for $149, there's they've got some other lights that have really kind of uh, I'll say been more popular out shown this one in certain ways but it's super robust and I've had a lot of clients recently who've been doing Zoom meetings and it's so much more flattering than ring lights. I think ring lights are actually, you know, they're cheap and they're battery powered, but they take up a lot of space. And I think that a lot of YouTubers or Instagram folk do not look flattering with the ring light light and all of these sort of under light that they get on their face. Only certain faces and certain styles, I think, is it, is it particularly attractive. It's so much better to have a point source light or a small diffuse light that you can set up somewhere nearby and just look more natural rather than sort of the, the glow of your computer screen or the glow of a ring light. So if you are one of those people who says, hey, I want to have something really small, I can take it with me, I can use it maybe to fill a shadow outside or to use it inside anywhere. Uh, the Aperture 
MX Lite, 149 bucks. Of course, you can get it at Hot Rod Cameras. We keep them in stock. Totally worth your time. Totally worth having. You should get one. So how are sales now? Are are you, uh, is your showroom open up again or are you still doing curbside? We're doing curbside and we're doing a little bit of by appointment. If you really, really need to come in and see us and talk about something, you want to build a studio, you want to organize your in-house production team, you want to demo a new lens, uh, we are doing some limited appointments. We are not just, hey, wide open as we used to be, wander in any old time. So uh, we're we're getting there. I think that maybe... Maybe in a few more weeks, but right now it's uh, it's still you know we're we're getting all of our systems in place, and we have thankfully a very big building with very few people in it, and we're all kind of spread out. We have a kind of our quadrants of the building, so I'd say every employee has got about two thousand square feet to roam themselves. So nice, yeah. This is like a Woodstock for introverts, man. It's <laughs> pretty good time. You know, uh, I I have heard I would say actually from a lot of my introvert friends, uh, more, more frequently actually than some of the extroverts. I think the extroverts might be, you know, curled up in a fetal position, rocking back and forth somewhere. Cause it's, uh, it's yeah. I mean, despite how I, uh, you know, how I might come across, I, I think of myself as a very introverted person and, uh, I really do like being left alone and, uh, I'm not sad that maybe I've shaken my last stranger's hand, for instance, you know, like oh, that doesn't make me, that doesn't bum me out we too can, much. We can start the bow. We can get, you know, it's big, big, bow. big in Japan. We can, we can bring it here. Let's, let's, let's bring it. And now short ends. <laughs> so Ben, what's your short end this week? Uh, I've been really busy working on a project, so I haven't had a lot of time to have a pet obsession, but I did uh, stumble across something kind of cool, and it actually ties to our close focus uh, segment earlier, which is yet another streaming service called Tubi. <laughs> T-U-B-I. And it was uh, re- let me let me interrupt you one second there. What what sort of odds are you giving Tubi, which sounds a little bit like YouTube, a little bit like... Quibi or Quilby or whatever. It's like, it's kind of like they took the. Dude, there are 10,000 of these things out there. There's Pluto TV and stuff. I I honestly don't know. But uh, here's here's why I found them, actually. My friend uh, Graham Skipper, who also worked with Stuart Gordon, who we talked about a few weeks ago, passed away, unfortunately. But Stuart was kind of a a well known cult filmmaker who made, you know, really interesting horror and genre films. And he made a film called Daughter of Darkness that was a, a pilot for a for a TV series, I think, or something. And it starred Mia Sarah and Anthony Perkins, hmm. right? And he made this in like nineteen ninety, I think it was nineteen ninety or nineteen ninety one. And it was one of the last things Anthony Perkins did actually before he passed away. And uh, it's not out on anything. And uh, Graham had like gone high and low. And I think he found it on some discontinued DVD and got the DVD. And and, um, and he tweeted about it. And somebody said, oh, it's it's on Tubi. And I'm like, it's the second time somebody had told me about Tubi in under a week. And I was like, let me check this out. And I went and Tubi is ad supported. It's all free. You don't have to sign up for literally anything. You're, you're not like giving your life away. And sure enough, there it was. And, you know, uh, in the highest resolution that it was available. And there's tons and tons and tons of stuff on there. It's weird because simultaneously we're sort of in this boom time of giant streaming services like HBO Max and Disney Plus and Netflix, Amazon Prime, Hulu, which I forgot earlier. Uh, and then there's, you know, kind of well-known, well-respected ones like uh, Canopy. Criterion has a great streaming platform. There's tons of that stuff. But then there are these little ones. I don't know how they're making a living at it. I don't know where they're getting their content. 
but it's it's all legal. It's you know, I feel like ten years ago I continually had the argument with people about why piracy was an awful thing and you should never do it. And I kept getting into arguments with people who were like, "Hey, at least they're watching your movie." And I'm like, it's, you know, like yeah, that, it, it doesn't help me if you watch my movie. It helps me if my movie makes money, and that goes for literally everyone who makes movies. So I'm glad that all of these kind of rando channels like Tubi exist. And when you when I poked around on it, there really is a ton of stuff on there. So I, I don't know that I would call it my pet obsession for the week because really my pet obsession this week is a project I can't talk about yet. Nice. All right. Well, uh, I'm sure you'll be able to talk about it soon. I can't wait. I'll either be able to talk about it because we're excitedly moving forward on it or I can talk about it because it's not getting made. So... <laughs> Uh, okay, so hey, my short end this week actually is a free bit of software that you can get from the fine people over at Canon. If you own selected Canon DSLR cameras or mirrorless cameras, they released a thing called the EOS Webcam Utility Beta. It's free. You can download oh, wow. this. And what does it do? It allows you to take your DSLR or mirrorless camera, plug it into your computer, and voila, you now have a high-quality webcam uh, that will give you a, you know, a, a very pretty picture, much better than probably the little tiny web camera that you're using built into your computer screen. Oh my God, that yeah, sounds great. So here's what I'd like to do with that. I'd like to take my Tokina 11 to 16 and throw that on my camera and be like, like half an inch away <laughs> from the lens and just be all fisheye in everybody's right. face. You, I, and I've, and I've never been able to do you that. You can totally do that so now. I'm very excited. You can, you can go absolutely crazy. You can go to 11, you can put your nose. Yeah, lens ye- baby. Oh my God, I could, I could, I could webcam you with can. a lens baby and be in a, in a zoom thing and just be all look, looking like, uh, somebody's drunken, <laughs> weird, uh, you know, kind of sloppy, horrible memory. Like when they were drunk or when they were, you know, turning into the incredible Hulk, that's a man, we should totally all do that. We should all have uh, a zoom thing. That's all lens baby. Uh, I, I, I like where your mind is going. I immediately, I'm thinking that there's a probe lens probably that could be used. There's all kinds of fun stuff that, that could be, could happen now with your, I wonder if you could hook it into the kind of lens that they use for like uh, when when they go down into your colon. <laughs> Colonoscopies. Uh, I wonder if I wonder if you could hook a colonoscopy thing and make that your webcam. No one's gonna want to see that. You've gone. You, up my own yes, ass. You've literally yeah. gone up your own ass with this. Okay. So uh, so so Ben, not to be outdone. Uh, I got to mention Fuji. Fuji said, wow, that's amazing. We're going to we're going to do that, too. And their latest update on their Fujifilm X webcam utility, also a free download for Fuji cameras. Uh, it's version 1.0. And that came out like three or four days ago. So you can go to the Fuji website. We'll put links to all this in the show notes. If you go to camnoir.com, boom, show notes. Here's a link to the Canon. Here's a link to the Fuji. And I believe Sony also has a utility now. So uh, there are multiple ways for you can do this with a USB cable. You don't have to buy expensive adapters, plug in HDMI cables, worry about embedding the audio. There's a, a really easy, inexpensive way you can do this now with just a USB cable for most of these manufacturers. Here's the, the thing about yep. that, though, I don't mean to pee on anyone's parade at all. I think that it's a great idea. However, I'm about to pee on everyone's parade. Is that, uh, you know, if you're uh, like we are right now, we're on a laptop and the webcam is built into the lid of the laptop. So basically, I'm almost making eye contact with you when I'm just looking at your image on the laptop. But if I have the camera, no matter how close I get the camera to the laptop, I'm still going to be like looking down. I'm not going to be looking right into the image unless I create some 
horribly kludgy kind of teleprompter situation, which is also something we could say. True. Someone, someone might buy that. Um, yes, that's uh-huh. true. And I think that some people might just train themselves. Uh, also, though, here's the thing. When you sit really close, like with the web camera, like we're doing now, it's very obvious when yeah. your eyes move up and down, up and down. When all of this stuff moves further away, it's less obvious. It's not it's not so much the thing. So if like uh, when your laptop or let's say when your camera is now sitting six feet away or seven feet away or whatever it is, um, your eye line is is only traveling this tiny little difference versus when we're in really close with our laptop here where you're looking down, you're really looking down. It's a, it's a huge difference that that 12 inches of your screen or real estate or whatever it is. That's very obvious when you're looking away when that's all moved further back. This is why teleprompters typically work and uh, and feel pretty natural for most people as their eyes are not darting all over the place. Yeah. Other pitches is you could have a, a, a motion controlled uh, slider that just kind of kept moving back and forth, but kept your head in the middle so that you looked like you were in some kind of plotting planning scene in a CSI show. <laughs> yes, you can add some. Um, I'm sure there's going to be like a Instagram, uh, I was going to say a, a Facebook sort of like augmented reality thing, too, where you can like be Tom Cruise and Minority Report and wave your hands around and suddenly like screens and things will appear too. And you're very, you're very high tech. <laughs> I've always wanted to put my webcam on a jib arm. Now I, I can do that. And, and if I'm really clever, like you won't necessarily see my arm in the shot <laughs> operating the jib arm. You'll just be like, God, that guy's magnificent. Uh, there's all kinds of cool tools from Blackmagic now too, which will allow you to switch multiple cameras. So if you think about that, you could have multiple of these cameras running into one of these little switchers and it's like, boom, take camera three, boom, take camera one, boom, take your close up. Yeah, That's a great you, can, idea. you can really, you can really jazz it up here if you want to. My zoom conferences are about to get <laughs> insane because I'm leveling bored. up on zoom. All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Ilias. So I think that wraps us up. Uh, where can people find you online? Uh, find me over at hot rod cameras, hotrodcameras.com. Also, you know, I, I do frequent the Facebooks and the Instagrams and stuff, and you can generally find me at at Ilya Friedman, wherever that that sort of thing. Whenever tell, someone tells me that they don't use Facebook, I'm like, you have four more hours in your day than I do. <laughs> you, you, you don't have to use Facebook like extensively. You can, you can just check in once in a while. Their messenger is pretty decent. So, you know, Facebook know. messenger. My, yeah. Bob DeRosa, who uh, who I worked with on 20 Seconds to Live in Video Palace, he uh, he he only has it, I believe, on his desktop, and he only checks it in the morning and the and at night. And uh, he said it's made his life. He deleted it from his phone. Mm. And he's like, everything is so much more peaceful. And I'm like, I, I'm addicted. I can't stop. So, uh, so speaking <laughs> of which, you can find me on Facebook. Uh, uh, currently saving the world from all of its ills with the massive truth bombs that I drop on everyone, and they're underappreciated. <laughs> Boom. Um, but. More importantly, you can find me at benrockonline.com and uh, all my social media is there. Uh, also, you can email me directly from there if you feel like it, but uh, I'm pretty easy to track down. Ilya, who do we need to thank for this week's awesome episode featuring Bradford Young, part one? Let's thank our fantastic composer, Kay Zalatrachi. Thank you so much, Kay's, who is he, he might listen to this one because he's a huge fan of Arrival. He'll be pissed off that arrivals in the next episode but i won't tell him that no don't tell him that he'll have to tune in now he'll have to listen to two episodes oof uh but yeah every scrap of music that you heard in this was uh was composed by k's alatrashi you can find him at musicbykays.com. by the way k's also does color correction he also does cgi animation Visual i'm not making effects. this up yeah he is uh uh quite the multi-hyphenate who else do we have to thank ben uh we need to thank alana cody our intrepid producer intrepid seems to have stuck for her i think i called her that last time 
So yeah, she is intrepid. She's intrepid. I didn't. I I wasn't trying to copy, but I was just describing her. No, accurately. you you did. You described her very accurately. We also need to thank Ben Katz, extraordinary. Ben Katz, who who makes us not sound like the uh, drooling idiots that we are every week. Ah, uh, yeah. Hold on, I gotta wipe a little drool off my face. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the sound effect there. I appreciate you. You're welcome. All right. All right. So, All right. hey, uh, join us back. We're going to have a bonus episode. I don't know if that's going to appear before part two of Bradford Young, just because it's a very short little thing. Uh, but I'm assuming Bradford Young part two. Uh, producer Alana Cody will confirm this, but it will be the following week. And uh, voila, you can get your, your fill of Bradford. All right. So we will see you next week, if not before, at the Cinematography Podcast. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.